Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. I was hoping when the podcast first started that one day you guys would decide to have guests and I would get to be one of them and it <laughs> happened. And so like I'm living a bit with wish fulfillment, which is always. Yay. I mean, it was literally one of the first things we talked about. <laughs> it was. Yeah. We were like, which are the plays that we like the least and who do we know that loves them the most? Yeah. <laughs> and you were right up there. Yeah. Great. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. And this week, we are joined by super special guest expert Patrick Harris to talk about the Merchant of Venice. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Hurly Burly Shakespeare listeners. <laughs> hey. Aubrey doesn't love this play, and I'm kind of blinded by my hatred of Portia. So we knew that we had to let our good friend Patrick come share his enthusiasm and knowledge. And I think you'll agree by the end of this episode that there is no one on earth who loves this play or knows more about it than our dearest darling Patrick. Also, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays and would like to talk with us on a future episode, email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas. So thank you again so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. So Patrick Harris, who the hell are you? Tell us about yourself. I mean, because we know, but like, tell us. uh, I'm great. Uh, I... Like these two lovely lady academics, I'm also a graduate of the MLIT MFA program at Mary Baldwin University. I, too, was a sweet wag. I have a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a.k.a. the only University of Illinois that matters. Fight me. (laughs) Um, And I am currently pursuing a Ph.D. in English at the University of Texas at Austin, AKA the only University of Texas that matters. Fight me. What what else do y'all need to know? Uh, that's that's uh, pretty much you it. know, just mm-hmm. a little bit about you. That's, that's all. That's me. And because we'll talk later about the stuff that you're working on specifically. So yeah, I I mean before we move on, Patrick, what's your favorite play? <sighs> so hard to choose. <laughs> I mean, I do love me The Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. That is my favorite Shakespeare play. It is not my favorite play. I know. That's why I didn't say what's your favorite play by Shakespeare. Uh, I guess my favorite play is Metamorphoses by Mary Zimmerman. Okay. What's your favorite early modern play? Dr. Uh, Faustus. Yeah, there it is. That's the one I was angling for. There we go. (laughs) So every week on this podcast, we discuss a different play by our homeboy, William Montgomery Shakespeare. Uh, at what we like to call the 101 level. Right, yes. This is introductory stuff. Everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions. And this week, Patrick's opinions, which, as you probably already tell, are spicy. Yeah. Yeah. My opinion should be everyone's opinions because I am right. (laughs) Yes. This is why this is why we love you. It's rhetorical device of the week time. Because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card. Pumpkin. (laughs) Okay, so you tell me when to stop. I'm just going to run this through here, and if you can see on the camera, you just tell me when to stop. Stop. We we like this one. Okay. Do we? Yeah, we do. We really like this one. Okay, this week's rhetorical device is 
Epizuxis. Ah! I've been waiting <laughs> for this one. <laughs> I told you we liked this one. This is my favorite device. 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 Okay. Epizuxis. E-P-I-Z-E-U-X-I-S. Got a sexy spelling, and it means the repetition of words with no others in between for vehemence or emphasis. Any guesses on what the example oh, I know. is? Howl, I'm howl, positive howl, I know. Howl, 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 howl. It's, it's either. Not? Yeah. It's one of two things. I'm certain of this. It is either from Othello, reputation, 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 I have lost my reputation, or it is King Lear, never, 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 never. No, it is neither of those things. You are both wrong. You are both wrong. It is from Hamlet. Polonius, what do you read, my lord? And Hamlet says... Words, words, words. Words, words, words. Or if you're John Harrell, words, swords, swords. I cannot roll my eyes out of my head any harder. (laughs) Missed opportunity. I'm just... Missed opportunity. Like, that King Lear line is quite possibly the most famous line in that play. And yeah. it's literally the same word five times. I know. And then there's then there's the Coriolanus one that's kill, 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 kill him. So Yes. Good. Remember that one? So many good ones. Really good ones. That so don't require other people. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we know a whole bunch more epizuxis. So there it is. Rep- epizuxis is repetition immediately with no words in between for vehemence or emphasis. Words, 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 howl, 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 never, 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 kill, 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 kill him. It's now time for your Burbage break with special guest, Master Master Harris. Take it away, Patrick. Thank you. I have, for a very long time since you guys started this podcast, wondered if I had a chance to do a Burbage break, what would it be about? And then you guys did most of them. Which is good because, you know, people should know about those things. But I was thinking about things that I am currently working on. And I thought it might be a good time to talk about Shakespeare in adaptation. Because I can. And part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this, besides that it is literally the reason I went to grad school in the first place, is because I think that Shakespeare adaptations are primarily responsible for why Shakespeare is still a part of our popular culture. You know, this is a question that Shakespeare scholars ask themselves all the time. Why are we still reading Shakespeare? And what does Shakespeare have to offer us as 21st century people? So on and so forth. And I think part of it is very practical, which is that, you know, artists who are looking to create something don't have to pay for Shakespeare because Shakespeare is in the public domain and is accessible pretty much everywhere, like in the world. And so it's very easy to get a hold of and it's good fodder for creative adaptation. And so I thought it'd be kind of nice to try to break down what Shakespeare adaptations actually look like and how they happen and what they do. So the tricky thing about Shakespeare adaptations, which I'm sure Jess and Aubrey can attest to, is that adaptation is one of those words that everyone feels like they have a pretty clear definition of and would be able to sort of designate what qualifies as an adaptation and what doesn't. The problem is that those individual definitions are not consistent across multiple people. Um, I am quite traumatically reminded of one of the first classes that the three of us had um, in dramaturgy, um, trying to nail down exactly what adaptation is. And especially with artistic adaptations and theatrical adaptations, sort of the notion that gets thrown around is that everything is an adaptation. So, you know, every performance of a Shakespeare play is an adaptation. Literally every single performance, not just each production, but night to night, that's an adaptation. I don't know that that's a philosophical rabbit hole that we want to go down, but people go down there. They're like miners, except they don't have the like little canary birds to tell them when the mine's like full of toxic gas, and so they all die. But what I have done to try to sort of simplify the conversation a little bit to give us a little easier ingress to these ideas is broken down 
adaptation into sort of like three general categories. Um, So the first category that I have come up with is recontextualization, which is a word that um, Microsoft Word does not recognize as being a real word. It totally is. And basically the way that I define that is when an adaptation maintains the basic plot structure and character types of a play, but changes the setting, you know, either the time or the place. You know, a good example of that would be Baz Luhrmann's 1996 Romeo plus Juliet, um, which has got all the same dialogue, got all the same characters, but happens in California for reasons that only Baz Luhrmann knows. What's interesting about that recontextualization is that because the time and place have changed, other aspects of the story have to change in order to make sense out of those primary recontextualizations. So that's how you get things like guns being referred to as swords and blades and, you know, the Capulet ball, instead of being, you know, just sort of like a party for Capulet's family and friends, turns into this big costume event where, you know, Mercutio is a drag queen and so on and so forth. So that's sort of generally how recontextualization works. And we're going to have to come back to that almost immediately um, because the next category is Remediation, remediation, which is when you present the play in a different medium. So literally any form of presentation that isn't a live stage performance. Um, so this is this covers a lot of things. This covers you know transposing the play into a film, into a TV show, into a novel, and there are sort of I guess degrees in which these remediations occur. And so you also have to think about intermedia, sort of where is it, where is the adaptation occupying multiple media formats? I am unfortunately stuck with the only example I can think of off the top of my head, which is um, a music video for a Taylor Swift song that you might be familiar with from very early in her career, where she is you know, invoking the Romeo and Juliet yes. story yes. in this song. Yes. But the music video is very much about high school, but you have, so you have a, a visual narrative that's being portrayed in the music video, and then you have the lyrics of the song that are invoking Shakespeare. And so you have this sort of intermedial or intertextual um, thing happening in adapting this Shakespeare work. Um, and this is something that happens all the time in adaptations of Shakespeare that become, you know, movies or TV shows um, because they will sometimes bring in Shakespeare dialogue and combine it with something very modern, like modern costuming. And so, you know, it all gets kind of muddled in the media, but it makes sense generally in the context of the adaptation. So not thinking of the adaptation as somehow being faithful to an original, but of being a work unto itself. And now here's the fun one, I think, which is quotation, which is a very broad category that also includes things like misquotation or misattribution. But these are ways that Shakespeare just sort of pops up very casually in our everyday lives and you know we might not think of that as necessarily being an adaptation but a lot of the time when we are quoting Shakespeare it is taking it out of context so again we're kind of recontextualizing what the Shakespeare text is um, and making it do something different than what it did in its original original form you can't see my air quotes but I'm doing them we can hear them for sure hear them yeah, it's okay. And like a really basic example is to be or not to be. That is the question, right? You, it's you. That's a meme now. So you can just say to blank or not to blank. That is the question. And you are both quoting Shakespeare, but you're also creating something new out of that Shakespeare text. But then you also get the really interesting things, with our, which are not the misattributions we can talk about forever, but the misquoting, because sometimes the misquoting is both accidental, but more meaningful than it would be to actually correctly quote the text. And one of the lines that comes to mind for me is that 
pretty famous line from part two of Henry the Fourth, where uh, Hal is watching his father sleep very fretfully. And this is the scene where he takes the crown and puts it on his head. And he has that uh-huh. really famous line that gets said a lot. Would either of you like to throw it out there? I don't our- think I know what it is. Isn't it uneasy lies the head oh. that wears the crown? Correct. That is the correct Got it. form of that line. Uneasy Damn right lies- it's the correct form. Of course it is. Uneasy <laughs> lies the head that wears the crown. The funny thing about it is that when you hear people quote that, they frequently say heavy lies the head that yes. wears the crown. Yep, I've heard that a lot. And that's wrong. They There's even do it on Empire. Do you guys watch that show? Do. Yeah. And like Jamal, the character Jamal has a whole song where his hook is heavy lies the head that wears the crown. It's so good. Just and, saying. And it's wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. It's, it's not, totally wrong. But it's a good it, hook. It's so wrong. It's, but it's also not wrong because what people usually mean when they're saying heavy lies the head that wears the crown is they're talking about the sort of the burden of being in power and of being a political figure and having to manage all kinds of political and diplomatic situations and expectations. And it is burdensome and therefore heavy. But what the line uneasy lies the head that wears the crown is about is literally about the fitful way that Henry IV sleeps because supposedly he feels this immense guilt over having deposed Richard II. Right. Right. So he's lying, literally lying, uneasy. Right. That is, it's a, it's a pretty transparent, literal line. Um, but of course, you know, probably has deeper meaning. But by changing that one word from uneasy to heavy, we've given the line this, a different layer of meaning that fits the context that we are usually using the line in. And then you get things like misattribution, which I honestly think is just people giving Shakespeare way too much credit. Like Shakespeare was great with words and with communicating feelings and ideas and all of that. And we should appreciate what he did. My least favorite one is the one that's all over fucking Pinterest. It's like, when I saw you, I fell in love and you smiled because you knew. Uh, it, does, it's not a, it doesn't even sound like Shakespeare. It's not, no. it's not even Shakespeare. That ain't um, And there are so many things like that that are actually, you know, 19th century transcendentalist philosophers or random 18th century philosophers or poets or whatever that, because they're not Shakespeare, don't have the same kind of name recognition and don't get read as often, don't get taught as often even by sort of academic readers, right? These are people that have fallen out of our popular cultural sphere. And so when they do pop up without attribution, if it sounds smart, interesting, profound, meaningful, emotional, anything that we might associate with, you know, a virtuoso writer, the tendency is to attribute it to Shakespeare without, you know, doing the very little bit of research it would take to determine that it is not in fact by Shakespeare. But by misattributing texts to Shakespeare, it keeps Shakespeare in our cultural sphere, um, especially with things like, you know, the misattributions on Pinterest or Tumblr that are everywhere in social media. And so it's part, it's a large part, I think, of what keeps Shakespeare in our popular culture. It's why even people who say they don't like Shakespeare or claim to have never read or seen Shakespeare actually know a lot more about Shakespeare than they realize. And it's because of all of the ways that his biography and his works get adapted into new cultural products. Good time. That was your masterful Burbage break with Master Master Harris. So we're going to in a moment, summarize The Merchant of Venice for you. But first, we always begin with a five-word unhelpful title. So this week, mine is Somehow More Racist Than Othello. Accurate. I'm not sure. (laughs) Not sure? It's pretty racist. It's pretty fucking racist. (sighs) It might be more racist. They're pretty close. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, these titles are meant to be unhelpful. They just also sometimes happen to be accurate. This one might be pretty accurate. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, right. I like to think that they're always accurate. They're just usually unhelpful. <laughs> like, if you're trying to figure out what the play is about with yeah. the five-word title, yeah. this is not no. for you. No. <laughs> not at all for you. Um, all right. So my title is four words. Uh, Portia sucks. Fight me. Oh. That's I have a real theme for today is fight me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> How about you, Patrick? Mine is not so secretly gay Antonio. Yeah. Mm. He's super gay. Mm. I mean, I kind of go both ways in that argument. No <laughs> puns intended. All puns intended. I'm lying. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, not so secretly gay Antonio. Yeah. He is, though. He's pretty gay. Yeah. I ship it. All right. Oh, see what I did there? Patrick snorting wine out his nose. It's fine. It's really good wine, so it's okay. (laughs) So let's talk Dramatis Personae. Only the really important ones, the people you need to know to get through this play. The first and foremost is that guy, Antonio, the merchant of Venice. And if you've gone your whole life thinking that Shylock is the merchant of Venice, you are wrong. So wrong. So correct yourself. Antonio is the merchant of Venice. Bassanio, his bestie, and also secretly his boyfriend. And Lorenzo, this other guy. I don't remember who Lorenzo is. He's he's just a Venetian gentleman. Like, he's not a merchant. He's just some well-off dude. That Antonio knows. Okay. They just Because like, that's how Antonio rolls. That's yeah. true. He does have an entourage. He's always got an entourage. Antonio. All dudes. Yeah. All dudes. So outside of Venice uh, at a floating island estate bullshit called Belmont, um, we have Portia, who sucks. <laughs> uh, and <sighs> she's, she's a, a, a woman orphan of marriageable age with a lot of money. Uh, and then there's her friend slash servant, Nerissa, who, like, barely exists. I have feelings about that. <laughs> I mean... I mean, th- those are not wrong descriptions. It just feels bad for Nerissa, because she does kind of only exist in the background. And it's yeah. sad, because if the play was about her, I think people would like it more. I would, 10 out of 10, watch a play about Nerissa. So then back in Venice, because that's literally how this play goes, we get Shylock... The money lender, also the Jew, which he is referred to as frequently. The people just refuse to call him his name throughout the play for no reason. Mm-hmm. And his daughter, Jessica, who is secretly in love. But we'll get to that. Ooh. And then, um, so there's a bunch of guys <laughs> who show up to Belmont to try to win the right to marry Portia. And there are only two of them that we actually meet are both princes. One of them is the Prince of Morocco, who is, in my opinion, one of the better men in this play, and the Prince of Aragon, who is a little full of himself. And then there are a couple more of Antonio's friends that generally get referred to as um, the Sallies, because they do just kind of run around Venice as a uh, an aggregate. They don't really have individual personalities, no. and that sounds like I'm like glossing over the text, but really they just don't. So, um, Patrick, yes. why is this play so goddamn popular? Hashtag, it's not. But why should it be? Well, like, it weirdly is. Like, it's not as popular as a lot of the other romantic comedies from around the same time. Like, Midsummer or As You Like It or Much Ado. Like, you know, those, the, the, the funny ones. But I think part of what makes this play as popular as it is, is that it's kind of really racist which sounds terrible, but wait, there's more. I do think that because of how grave the the situation is with Shylock, that it's uh, it sort of draws people in. It's kind of that lurid fascination with racism and with racial violence and controversy, and it makes people... I mean, it, it can be cathartic, actually, to watch a play like that. I don't know how cathartic this play is for some people. I personally find it very, not relatable, but I understand sort of the the ethnic and racial politics of The Merchant of Venice. And I get why it's such an attractive 
story for audiences and for theater companies. But on a slightly less awful note, it has everyone's favorite Shakespeare trope, cross-dressing. I love cross-dressing. Yeah, there are three cross-dressing women in this play, which is more than all of the Shakespeare plays. Um, So that's super exciting. And it can be funny, the cross-dressing, I mean. And I do think that there are moments in this play that can be very, very tender and sweet and romantic, but it really does depend a lot on how the production deals with the sort of two plot lines of the play. Because there's sort of one thing that's kind of always happening in Venice with Shylock and then another thing that's always happening in Belmont with Portia. And so depending on how the production emphasizes and de-emphasizes those things um, can really change whether it comes across as this sort of tragic comedy type of thing or if it does come across more like a pretty conventional Shakespeare romantic comedy. So uh, we will now summarize The Merchant of Venice for you in a segment that this week we like to call Make Them Kiss Part 2, Venetian Boogaloo. <laughs> yes. Oh, Patrick, your face. <laughs> Are you offended at my title? No, I'm just... What even? <laughs> well, because yeah, last week with Coriolanus was Make Them Kiss, part one, I, mean, I yes, suppose. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Definitely Make Them Kiss. Yeah. I'm all, I'm here for that. Yeah. So anyway, we're just continuing on that. Um, congratulations, Jess, on Venetian Boogaloo. I think I like that. It just makes me think of the electric boogaloo, which is never a bad thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. For real. Kind of dancing to it in my head. Boogaloo. Yep. Okay. All right. Are we ready? I I have my stopwatch. So, uh, Patrick, whenever you are ready to kick us off, take it away, baby. Okay. So, Antonio is sad. Maybe because of business. Maybe because he's in love. Maybe it's Maybelline. Who knows? Um, Bassanio shows. Like, I need money. And Antonio is like, I will co-sign a loan for you, basically, which is a mistake. And then, meanwhile, in Belmont, uh, Portia is also sad because her dad died, but mostly because she can't choose her own husband. Um, And so she and her best girlfriend, Narissa, make fun of all of her suitors who then up and leave for no reason. And then... Back in Venice, Bassanio, but actually Antonio, uh, borrows money from Shylock, and they agree to the worst business deal ever. It's so bad. In Act 2, Portia's racist about the Prince of Morocco. Like, she says super racist shit about the Prince of Morocco, who's, like, the best guy. Uh, Shylock's daughter, Jessica, plans her elopement with Lorenzo, who's a Gentile. Gasp! Then she elopes with all the money. Uh, The Prince of Morocco chooses poorly and doesn't get to marry Portia, because there's, like, this thing with caskets, and he chooses the wrong one. Uh, Shylock is super upset that Jessica ran away with a Christian. No! Uh, and Portia's shitty again about another suitor, the Prince of Aragon. Okay, so then in Act 3, Antonio finds out that all of his ships abroad have been lost at sea, which is, you know, terrible because now he doesn't have the money to pay back Shylock, who is going to kill him. Shylock learns how Jessica has been spending his money, i.e. buying monkeys. Bassanio shows up in Belmont with all of this money and like new clothes and gifts. And he's like, I'm going to marry you. But he has to choose the right casket. And surprise, he does. And then they, you know, fall in love almost instantly. And then they get married because they are disgusting. And then a letter comes from Venice. And it's like, dear Bassanio, I'm dying. Please come back because I miss you because I'm not so secretly gay. Love, Antonio. So Bassanio decides to go back. And Portia sends money with him to bail Antonio out. But as soon as Bassanio leaves, Portia and Arissa decide to cross-dress as men for literally no good reason um, to go, you know, check out their menfolk. So then uh, we find out that Antonio cannot repay Shylock. He has not got the money. Um, And Shylock is determined to uh, take the pound of flesh that Antonio put up as surety for the bond. Um, Not even the Duke can sway Shylock away from taking that pound of flesh. And Shylock's all, I'm going to take it from as close as your heart as possible and you go and die bitch. Crossdress Portia shows up and saves the day by telling Shylock that he can have the flesh, but the bond does not account for any blood, so, like, suck it. Shylock has to give up all of his money 
and also convert to Christianity, which is kind of uh, an, a disproportionate Extra. punishment, frankly. Yeah. Um, everybody's happy except for Shylock because they all suck. Uh, Portia and Narissa hit the bricks back to Belmont. Bassanio and his pal Garacciano catch up with them and they thank them for their help because they're still cross-dressed and they're like, thanks, lawyer dudes. And then as payment for their help, Portia and Narissa, who are still cross-dressed, get their wedding rings from the boys as payment. All right. So in the last moments of the play, Lorenzo and Jessica, who have been left in charge of Portia's house in Belmont, are being absolutely fucking adorable um, because they are the most in love. And then Portia and Arissa arrive and not even a moment later, uh, Bassanio, Antonio and Gradiano also arrive. And like at first there's some, you know, chit chat. And then all of a sudden there's this big to do about these rings because vows were made and promises and so on and so forth. But then Portia and Arissa reveal that, you know, it was all a, dro- a joke and everyone basically gets what they want and they all live ever after. That was four minutes. We fucking killed it. Yay! <laughs> we also, Boom. I think, left out some pretty significant details about what exactly the bond was and what exactly is the deal with the casket. But, like, I still love us. Yeah. That's I fine. mean, the pound of flesh is so ubiquitous, though. Like, how do you yes, not one know? one of those things that people just quote all the time. Yes. They don't know what Shakespeare play it comes from. Anyway, yeah. I'm going to get off my adaptation bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to stay off it for long. But basically, to fill in some of those gaps that you talked about, Shylock wants a pound of flesh specifically from Antonio because Antonio's been super fucked up to him for fucking ever. And he wants his revenge. And uh, and then, like, there's these caskets. One's lead, one's gold, and one's silver. They have weird riddles in them. If you don't choose right, you don't get Portia. And, like, if you know you chose right because there's a picture of her inside it. And oh, wait, there's more. Alert. Oh, yeah? Because if you don't choose right, not only do you not get Portia, you have to swear never to get married. Ever. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Which is why all of the guys that they make fun of in the, the second scene of the play decide to leave. Because they're like, oh, fuck that. I want to yeah. get married eventually. All right, so it's tips and tidbits time. Talk to us about some cool stuff about this text, Patrick. Go, go, go. Okay, so a textual crux that I care very much about uh, is related to the Sallies, which uh, we've talked about a bit already. Um, So the Sallies are a hard group of characters to describe because depending on what version of the text you are reading, they are a different number of people and they have slightly, well, they have slightly different names. So the three Sallies are Salarino, Solanio, and Salario. Or sometimes because... Solario. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Like, that's just a hot damn mess. I think Shakespeare just ran out of Italian names. No shit. Most modern editions have only two or three. But which two they have when they only have two is usually pretty interesting. The weird thing about this that I have always suspected, but was finally able to kind of begin to confirm this past semester, is that it has to do something with the composition of the first quarto of The Merchant of Venice. But I'm going to backtrack real quick and say that in the first quarto of The Merchant of Venice, Salarino is only in the first half, and Salario is only in the second half. Solerio shows up in 3-2. He's the guy who delivers Antonio's letter to Bassanio in Belmont right after he wins the casket test. Right? So these two characters with apparently different names are only in one half of the play each. It's kind of like Clark Kent and Superman. You never see them in the same room twice or at the same time. So what's the dealio with that? When this play was composited and printed as the first quarto, a weird and quite annoying thing happens with the speech headings for these two characters, which is that Solanio, who is got a fairly straightforward name and is less similar to the other two, um, his speech heading throughout most of the play is S-O-L. Occasionally, it's S-O-L-A. Salarino has a, a different speech heading that's a little too similar. It's either S-A-L or S-A-L-A. At one point on one page of the first quarto, in the scene where they are talking about Antonio Shiz being lost at sea, their two speech headings end up being the same for like literally five lines of text. And then 
Salarino's speech heading switches back to being S-A-L. The real problem becomes when Salerio shows up, because Salerio's speech heading throughout the entirety of his time in the play is S-A-L. So Salerio and Salarino, I almost confused myself, have the same speech heading a lot of the time. And in later editions of the play, those two speech headings are undifferentiated, which I believe is probably why most modern editors have not come to a consensus about which of these characters is supposed to be which person, and when do they show up, and what is their function in the play. Um, so a lot of the time in modern editions of the play, if there are only two Sallys, it tends to be that Salarino and Salerio get conflated into one character, but which name gets used is not consistent. Um, but Salerio has a very different function in the play. He seems to operate primarily as a court officer. So, like, he delivers the letter on behalf of Antonio, and then during the trial, he basically announces the people that show up, whereas, you know, Salarino and Spolanio actually have something like an intimate relationship with Antonio. So, yeah, it's an interesting, weird thing about the play. I am convinced, because it it, it is physically possible to do so, um, that one actor could, in fact play all three of those characters. It's just, you know, whichever of Salarino or Solanio you wanted to have a person perform with their actual bodies, they would do. And then the other one would be a hand puppet. And then they would okay. just do, like, a massive costume change to become the third Sally in the second half of the play. I'm convinced this is a good idea, and it should be done. Here I want to see it now. Totally. Um, so, yeah, that's my interesting textual thing, because it's an interesting textual thing. As far as producing the play goes, I want to encourage more people to start thinking about how to stage the play as a romantic comedy and less so about, you know, the whole Antonio Shylock pound of flesh thing, because that's important, obviously, because without it, there would be almost no conflict in the play whatsoever. Um, But the way that our sort of post 18th century productions of the play have focused on Shylock as a character and on his story have kind of eliminated all traces of both romance and comedy in this play and performance. And so I want to push people to think about how to do the romantic comedy and how to do that is entirely about the rings in the play, which if you have listened to this podcast before and you have listened to the extra Blackfriars chatter, um, you have heard that I gave a paper at the last Blackfriars conference about the ring exchanges in the Merchant of Venice. It is the thing I care most about in this play because I think it is an overlooked but critical plot element, not only because of what happens in the last scene of the play, but because without the ring exchanges that happen between Portia and Bassanio and Nerissa and Gradiano, you don't really have any reason to like the women in the play. And Portia is the largest part in the play. She's in the most scenes. She has the most lines. So, like, if there was any hope for you liking Portia, you'd have to sort of be on her side to begin with. And the only way to do that is if the audience recognizes that when Portia gives Bassanio a ring, it's not only, I guess, an act of submission, although it is partly that, but it is kind of like a business deal, right? They are entering a marriage contract. It's not just about how they feel about each other. It's like, look, dude, I have all the things that you want and need out of life, and I'm perfectly happy to give them to you because I love you. However, if you give this ring away, bad, terrible things will happen to you. Um, And then, you know, also, if you don't do the ring exchanges like they matter, then you miss out on what is possibly the greatest female masturbation joke in the entire Shakespeare canon, which is entirely about how Portia had sex with the young doctor who got her ring, which is both a metaphor for for her vagina and also her having sex with herself. So, like, rings are important also. One of the literal saddest parts of the play is about how Jessica stole Shylock's ring that he got from his wife in their youth and sold it for a monkey. It's the monkey coming back again. So, like, rings are important and they matter. And if you stage them like they matter, then the play is more romantic and a little bit funnier. 
Yeah, I, I always remember Dr. Ralph going on about that line where Shylock says, I had it of Leia as a bachelor and like how heartbreaking that line is and how that moment is. It's a good, good moment. Because I think you're right. I think there's so much focus now. Anytime I hear about a Merchant of Venice production happening, there's always like, who's going to play Shylock? And are they actually Jewish or are they putting on Jewishness, you know, are to be Shylock? And it becomes about the Jewishness and about the anti-Semitism, which, as you said, are important. But um, but I feel like that's also how it gets like mired in the the problem play area. And, yes. and this play is like classified as a comedy it's supposed to be funny i still don't find it funny but like you know it's as much as i love this play it's just not that funny yeah like when the girls make fun of the suitors that's kind of funny i mean i can't think of anything else that really is yeah lancelot gobbo is the unfunniest clown in the entire history of the world yes which is why i'm glad we left him out of her dramatis persona because like he doesn't matter nope to the plot He's not really all that especially likable. He's not funny. Yeah. I've never seen a production of this play that had a good Lancelot gobble, and I don't think it's the actor's fault. I just don't think the clown is that funny. Yeah. This, I mean, that's why I struggle with this play generally. I, I struggle to find any redeeming qualities in anybody. To like, That's why I struggle with Measure for Measure, too. It's not just this play, but like, I have a problem with plays that there's not at least one person with whom I can empathize or identify. And like at the end, it comes to be Shylock because like he's forced to do a bunch of reprehensible things that are wrong, you know, to as his punishment. But like up until then though, he's a dick, just like all the rest of them. Yeah, I think for me, the, the saving grace of this play, besides, I like, okay, so I'd really just like the way this play is written. Like in terms of words, these are some of Shakespeare's better words um <laughs> okay that's fair but also i really am attached to the lorenzo jessica story um one because it is the least offensive um you know of all of the men in the play lorenzo is the least bad um and i also find their last moments of the play when they're alone um, as, you know, the sun is coming up and they're talking about all of these classical stories about mostly tragic lovers, which I don't think Lorenzo realizes he's doing. But I've also noticed that men in Shakespeare tend to do all the time. Like, it's a great thing. Like, they're comparing themselves to this epic love. And it's like you're comparing yourself to an epic love that failed miserably. But <laughs> that being neither here nor there, um, I think it's kind of a sweet moment that can be either very somber and sweet it can be kind of playful and sweet because you know jessica's sort of meeting him tit for tat and it's clearer to me from that conversation just how much they actually care about each other um so it makes all of the things that have to happen in order for them to be together and the consequences of with them being together are less terrible it makes it seem worthwhile okay i could maybe buy that i'd like to see a production that does those things that you say Honestly, when are you going to direct this show is my question. When somebody lets me. <laughs> so that it can be done right. So really... that it can be done right. Yeah. Yes. Did yeah. either of you see um, the merchant in Richmond two summers ago that Matt was in? I did not. Okay. No, I couldn't. I think I was already I had already left Virginia. Yeah, by then. I think you had. Um, yeah. Well, it was very good. And I think hit some of those romantic comedy notes. I'm going to revise my statement immediately. Parts of it were very good. Parts of it were bad. <laughs> um, but I, that's, I think, you know, true of many performances of many plays. But I do, I do recall it hitting some of those romantic comedy-esque notes. Uh, the Lorenzo and Jessica in particular were far less melancholy than I often see them played. I have a question. Yeah. Do you remember in that production if when Lorenzo and Jessica ran away, if Jessica was dressed as a boy? I don't. Interesting. I only asked about the cross-dressing Jessica because it's a very brief moment in the play that often they just people don't have her cross-dress. 
Because yeah, she would be remember. the third one, right? You She'd be the third there one. Three, there are yeah. three rings and three cross-dressing women. I mean, it's 100% of the women in this play. The women in this play do very interesting things with clothes and also rings, which is why I care so much about them. Also, like, Lorenzo has this kind of weird no-homo joke about Jessica being cross-dressed as a boy. Just like Orsino. Just like that. All right, should we... Play a game. We're going to play Line Roulette. And Jess, is... can you refresh our memory for how that's played? Yes, this is our favorite game here on the yes. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. Um, line Roulette is where we uh, roll some dice, come up with a random line number, and give a person 60 seconds to pontificate on why that single line is representative of the entire play as a whole. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, Patrick gets to go this week. <laughs> so, Patrick, are you ready? Do you have a text I, at hand? I, I have a text at hand. Good. All right. Excellent. So Jess has the dice at hand. Act four. Okay. Scene four? Is there a scene four? I bet there's not. No, it's like there it's two scenes. One and two. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we'll go, so we'll go to the next two. nearest. Yeah. Act okay. four, scene two. Line. Ready? Oh, God. All right. Ah, she dropped the dice. What? Ah, ah. Oh, wait. Oh, yes, there is. It's very short. Sorry. I found it. 4-2? Yes, it's very four, short. 4-2 is short? It. It's super short. Oh, this is, it's the one after the trial. No, no, no. Okay, so 4-2, four, four, line 36. Do we have a There th- are line not 36? 36 lines in this play or okay. in this oh. scene. <laughs> What's the next nearest? All right, hang on. Uh, how about line 12? How about line 12? I can do 12. Great. 4-2, line 12. Read it out for us, if you will. So it's a shared line. Good. Between Graziano and his cross-dressed wife, Nerissa. Graziano says, that will I do. And Nerissa says, sir, I would speak with you. All righty. Okay. I'm ready. It's a good thing you're so damn smart, because you've got 60 (laughs) seconds now to tell us why that shared line encapsulates the whole play i've got my stopwatch ready so uh take it away start talking all right so this line encapsulates the play because this is a moment happening between a man who does not recognize his wife is cross-dressed so you know we've talked about early modern face blindness this is kind of early modern face blindness but with disguise but what's really interesting about this moment is that in the original text there aren't really clear stage directions as to whether or not Portia and Nerissa are still supposed to be disguised so this would be a great moment for some like slapstick comedy with trying to keep on a disguise while also trying to talk to your husband um and also it's another example of how the women in this play are just better than the men because the women are going to play a rather hilarious prank on their husbands and so you know yeah, her speaking with him is all a pretense for just tricking him, which is far too easy because he's a dummy and a racist. So he deserves it. All right. Well, that was 50 seconds, so you're you're perfect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well done. Well done, Patrick. I love it. I love when they come up short because it's so easy. So time right. for some gossip, yeah? Ooh, yeah. Okay. It's bubble gossip time. So the first thing on our agenda, we've got a lot. So uh, SAA... The Shakespeare Association of America had their annual meeting this past weekend. Uh, it finished, I think, officially last night or maybe this morning. Um, Today. And, yeah. yeah. Today. None of us were there because we are poor and none of us live near L.A. anymore. Um, and it's a sad day for all of us. But uh, one of the best parts of SAA is following everything on Twitter. Um, with the hashtag and this year uh, they changed the hashtag the hashtag as long as I can remember which frankly is only like the last four years um, has been hashtag shake ass and then the year so this year as in Shakespeare Association shake ass it's like cheeky and funny yeah, it's cheeky and funny <laughs> cheeky, <laughs> cheeky. <laughs> um, and this year you know when they sent out the 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 annual bulletin and the schedule in January they sort of very quietly mentioned that it was a different hashtag this year it's it's shakes 2018 um, which is S-H-A-X which I hate because I always pronounce it as shacks like, I mean, that's how you pronounce that. 
That's uh, how I pronounce it. That's wrong. I'm I've only <laughs> oh. ever heard people still say shakes. Um well, because that's not English, but I know. whatever. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> anyway. Right. So it's Shaq's twenty eighteen this year. Um and people have feelings about it. So the the only thing that I have seen that seems in any way official on why they did this came from Holly Dugan on Twitter um, in November. All right. So it wasn't in January that they did the change anyway. And what she says, so I'm just going to read this tweet verbatim um, because it emerged uh, and grew from the margins of SAA, which are women, scholars of color, non-affiliated scholars, junior faculty and grad students. I've been hesitant to try to change it without a good reason. Hashtag me too is a good reason. And some people responded to that, including Kim Hall, who we have talked about on this podcast before, saying that for her, Shake Ass was about resistance, and it jumps over the fact of SAA's whiteness to her very own brownness. It recognized that embodiment matters and, uh, sorry, it recognized that embodiment matters politically and also intellectually. And Jonathan Shu, Wait. Jonathan Shue, S-H-U-E, Jonathan Shue? Jonathan Shue, H-S-Y. Okay, because I was about to say Jonathan Shue as in the composer of our theme music and <laughs> not, my friend. No, no not, not, that not that John Shue. Gotcha, no. okay, yeah. I was confused. So he's at George Washington University. Um, so what Jonathan Shue says is that the change is peak wasp. Quote, professional norms are always socially coded. And there's a lot more discourse on Twitter. You can check it out. Patrick, you said you had feelings about this. So why don't you give us a treat about I, your feelings? I I have so many feelings. But basically what it boils down to is that contrary to her ultimate intention, Holly Dugan is right to point out that the shake ass hashtag does come out of the 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 work and resistance of lady academics, such as yourselves, um, queer academics and academics of color. And that to attempt to professionalize or sanitize the hashtag really just smacks of respectability politics, um, ultimately, which, you know, especially in professional spheres have never been deemed problematic, even though they are. Can you, kind, Patrick, can you give us a rundown of what do you what you mean by respectability politics for maybe the, listeners that don't know? Absolutely. Um, it's this prevailing notion that in order to be respected or taken seriously in any kind of social environment, you need to present in a particular way. So you have to dress a particular way, speak a certain way, and otherwise comport yourself according to a fairly homogenized notion of personhood and those norms tend to exclude if not actively oppress women people of color people with queer gender or sexual identities and i personally feel that it has been especially prevalent in professional arenas because they they are hierarchical by nature and so to bring it back to the hashtag i think you know, the whole point of the shake ass hashtag was to not deconstruct, but maybe disrupt some of those hierarchical professional structures that exist at SAA specifically. I mean, there are still so many barriers at SAA, like the fact that, you know, neither Jess nor I could get support from our respective institutions to go there without being able to present, which of course we can't do because neither of us is about to defend a dissertation, Mm. which is stupid because ultimately the implication of that is that unless you have gotten to the point where you are writing a dissertation, you have nothing of value to offer. Yeah. And also I presented before because I was in the terminal stages of a terminal degree before. We both have a terminal degree in literally what the conference is about. And yet we are not allowed to present and therefore cannot get support from our institutions to go. So there are already so many existing institutional barriers at SAA that having, you know, a somewhat irreverent hashtag 
designed to call attention to the fact that there are those barriers and to attempt to disrupt them or at least to begin to disrupt them was kind of a useful thing, especially I think for early career academics because there's weird age things in academia as well. And for women and people of color and queer academics as well, I think having that little bit of disruption and resistance be so broadly available through social media was a really important facet of the conference and to have it be taken away is very disappointing. Um, But it has been interesting to see which people on Twitter have taken it upon themselves to continue to use the shake ass hashtag in conjunction with the new shacks hashtag that has been anthropologically interesting and also just kind of amusing <laughs> yeah my not biggest issue with the with the new hashtag but um something that keeps sticking in my craw about it is that shake ass was so distinctive you know yeah. whenever you have a conference you're always sort of running into well, is there another conference with the same hashtag? Like the Blackfriars hashtag has changed uh, in recent years because there was like a breastfeeding conference with the same hashtag. Um, but guess yeah, what? Because that's, the acronyms alphabet yeah, soup is all the same. It's yeah. still that's that's still a problem. They're still sharing that that hashtag. But shake ass was it's itself by itself always distinctive. But shacks is not. I mean, that could be literally any Shakespeare conference so i think i think it still needs to undergo revision if if they want to really find something that the the membership is gonna really sort of uh latch onto and absorb and be enthusiastic about also the people you know last year at saa when it was in georgia atlanta Atlanta, i was like i was there where was it um there was conversation that was still the the shake ass hashtag and there was conversation about changing it um and all of the conversation that i heard seemed to be that the people who were uncomfortable with the hashtag were the people who don't tweet it's you know the the old so then why the hell would they care exactly like how does that affect them why do they care that's so dumb yes i mean but you know people care about things that don't affect them because they're people that's human nature but it does it this particular one seemed a little silly that it was you know it was the the old guard the people who are on their way out the people who are at the end of their tenure the people who are in retirement or looking close to retiring the people who are frankly gonna be dead in 10 years they were sort of the biggest voice of resistance to that hashtag um i don't ultimately know who or what or why uh the responsibility for changing the hashtag happened that sentence was not grammatically sound but like you know where i'm going (laughs) i would like to know a little bit more about whose decision that was how they came up with the new hashtag you know what specific concerns they were responding to um and so on so i i am glad to see that the the association is evolving and changing i think it's important um i think the the way that it seems to be trending towards accessibility for junior scholars and um underprivileged scholars and marginalized scholars is good and exciting but you know as with any process change is hard um and has has its pitfalls and I think sometimes in an effort to do a good thing, you end up fucking up something that was already good, which is kind of what this sounds like the root maybe is. I mean, calling out the Me Too movement as an excuse sounds like, okay, noble intentions. I'm not, I'm just not sure how the two things are related. Yeah. I mean, I like, I get that it's like, it's sexualizing language. Yeah. Or like, it, like, in sort of surface level reads that way and i can see why that might make someone uncomfortable i get it i'm not saying that that's not a valid response to what that hashtag was but it seems like what it became it it lost an important yeah um, element of you know why that shake ass hashtag existed in the first place right yeah 
All right. Well. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a whole lot of talk about a hashtag. Yes. Um, but good talk. Uh, since we weren't actually at the conference and can't talk about the content of what was actually happening. So Patrick, as our very special guest, we like to ask our special guests, what are you working on right now? What are you thinking about? What are you doing these days? So many things. Yeah. Um, sort of at the forefront of my mind um, is uh, the class that I am TAing this semester, um, which is a Shakespeare <laughs> through performance class. Um, taught by uh, Dr. James Lowlin, who is also the director of Shakespeare Studies at UT. Uh, he it runs the Shakespeare at Winedale program. Uh, we have seen some of their shows when they yes. moved to Stanton to perform in the Blackfriars. Um, so I'm taking a class with him this semester, and the students um, have been reading plays organized around the theme of meta theater. Um, so, you know, they read Hamlet. Um, the Taming of the Shrew, Julius Caesar, Love's Labor's Lost, plays that in some way or another engage with the concept of meta theater. And then over the course of the last little over a month, I guess, five, six weeks, we have been rehearsing a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, in which I am playing Aegeus. Uh, this is my fourth time. Ooh, fun. This show. It's my first we time. You were directing Aegeus. it. No, I'm kind of, it's weird. I'm like kind of sort of an assistant director. So like we've been doing like text work and movement okay. work type things. And I've been helping out with that kind of thing. But I also then have this part that I, you know, learned literally in the first day because I've been in this play now four times and I know all of the words. Well, it's not um, a taxing part either. It's That's true. Yeah. It's two scenes, Jess. It's perfect. <laughs> Two scenes, four speeches. It's super easy. And it's all exposition. Like, I don't really have to, like, delve deep into the character. I could. I won't. Except to say that um, Aegeus is totally a Slytherin. Um, <laughs> Word. Like, like me. But he's one of, like, the evil, like, pure-blood mania Slytherins, like the Malfoys. <laughs> um, Real talk. So, yeah. We, we're not a huge fan of him. But he's uh, great. Um, super fun to play. Um, but because this class is organized around meta theater, I am also doing an independent project with James about queer meta narratives in Shakespeare adaptations. So Ooh, sexy. I know it's super great. All I literally all I've done for this project for this entire semester is read Shakespeare or gay Shakespeare. <laughs> um, and it's been nice. really very satisfying. I feel content. With my life choices but yeah. i love this project um and i never would have thought of doing it if i wasn't working with james on this class so it's been really great and i'm also doing another seminar paper about disability theory which is something that i don't know a lot about which has been very good for me having already gone through a very specialized graduate program to be encountering something that i don't really know a lot about and really enjoy learning about um so i am working on a project about the political rhetoric of displaying mutilated bodies in Shakespeare's plays. So Ooh. we get some um, some Coriolanus in there. It's going to be a pretty important part of the play. Yeah, uh, baby. And some Julius Caesar and some Titus Andronicus and some Macbeth and some Pericles talking about different kinds of dismemberment or disfigurement that happen in Shakespeare's plays and sort of the role that various state authorities have in causing or otherwise exploiting um, those disfigurements, um, which I've only begun to work on because it's conceptually very unfamiliar to me. So I'm like struggling to wrestle all of the ideas, but it's super fun to just think about. Like I find myself just sitting in my apartment going, man, you know, the wounds in Coriolanus are very interesting because they're kind of like an analog for the wounds in Caesar's body. And, like, there's an interesting relationship between wounded bodies and the body politic and corrupted, infected, like, septic bodies and also corrupt government. It's a thing, probably. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's what I'm doing. I love your brain. Well, that sounds awesome, Patrick. And, yeah, I'm going to second jest. We love your brain, so thank you for taking the time out to be with us and be our 
only our second special guest. Yeah. And who knows? You know, maybe when we roll around to Faustus, we might need your help again. Maybe for a 101 or a 201. Because, man, I struggle with that play, too. Oh, it's so so good, y'all. I love Faustus. Um, It's all right, I guess. (laughs) I also can understand why you might not love it. It's got it's got some textual issues. Oh, it, it has. That's yes, it why is. you love a play, though. I know. That's I know. Why you I know. Love a play. That's <laughs> why I love a play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so true. Uh, well, thank you again, Patrick, and thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. And maybe, maybe even liking Portia or some of these other despicable characters nope. in The Merchant of Venice a little bit better than when you started. I don't have a lot of hope for myself or for Jess, but maybe you out there feel that way. I don't Um, know. Thanks again. Double thanks to Patrick for joining us. We hope that you all now love him just as much as we do. Uh, And if you do, and even if you don't, get over to Twitter and follow his sweet, sweet ass. You can find him at PatrickAaron89. And then uh, tune in next week for Twelfth Night 201. It's going to be great, y'all. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell all your friends. Rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla, which is H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The villainy you teach me, I will execute, and it shall go hard, but I will better the instruction. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Dust in my eyes, burning up my rubber, going 95. I don't get to where I'm going. I think I might die. I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife. Yes. Yes. Yeah, out of context, it's real sexy. It is really sexy. (laughs) Punish me, Daddy. Yes. That was dumb. I can't that out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm hitting stop. I am tired.